The opposite of unworthiness is not worthiness. It's getting off the question. Awareness, the final frontier. These are the explorations of Jonathan Robinson and Brian Tom O'Connor. Their continuing mission, to discover fresh new paths to the mystery within, to seek out new joys and new methods of awakening, to boldly go into the heart of expanded consciousness. This is Awareness Explorers. Well, welcome back, fellow explorers, to Awareness Explorers. Great to have you again. And I'm the co-host, Jonathan, and I'm with my friend and trusty co-host. Brian Tom O'Connor. And Brian, we have someone that you're a big fan of, and I barely know, Rosalind Rourke. And, well, anything you want to share about Rosalind before I say her uh, bio? Well, we'll get into it, except that I really loved her book, When Wisdom Arrives, which I which I just read. So uh, we'll we'll talk all about that, and I'm really looking forward to that. Great. And uh, she just gave us many compliments about the podcast. So she's obviously a very intelligent woman. Uh, <laughs> anyways, a little bit about mm. Rosalind. She's an MSW. She's the author of When Wisdom Arrives, From Imagine Unworthiness to Freedom. It's both a fable and a memoir. And she says that unworthiness is another name for the feeling described as inner shame. Rosalind was one of the pioneers in the 1980s, teaching shame as a phenomena different from guilt. She is a master teacher and coach of a personality system called the Enneagram, which I'm quite familiar with. Her longtime experience with non-duality and A Course in Miracles helped make sense of the unexpected death of her daughter, Melissa, at age 39. Rosalind felt drawn to come out of a happy retirement to share her breakthroughs, from suffering, shame, and personality constriction to a life of equilibrium and stability. Well, welcome to Awareness Explorers, Rosalind. Thank you so much. So Brian is quite familiar with your book and your work, and I am not. So I find it interesting that you wrote kind of a spiritual book as a combination fable and memoir. And I'm wondering what your hope with doing that was. Yeah, thank you for asking that. I had a very specific idea for why to write a book in 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 with no jargon. So it's not actually identifiable as a non-duality book. And that's because I see a great many people, maybe great many is an exaggeration, but the people I often see are people who really don't get the word awareness. There may be Course in Miracles, longtime students, and maybe even teachers, but have not derived the peace, the joy, the love that have been promised. And so they're doing spiritual practices, but they can't get into non-duality because of words like awareness. And that may surprise you because it's key in your podcast and it helps to identify your target audience, but there's a whole there are a whole lot of people who glaze over. And that wasn't enough yet to write the book. 
But then when I was in a writing community, that happened also to be very spiritual, and but kind of generic spirituality, meditation, believe in the universe, just kind of general spiritual ideas, but not a particular path. They would glaze over when I said no on non-duality. Even if I said not to, that didn't make it, it. It was like there was a hypnosis on certain words that didn't help people get past. And so I just had a strong desire to see if I could explain the things that have meant so much to me in my experience of freedom, if you will, that there really aren't words of letting go the suffering without using any of those words. And by the way, the trick, the faulty trick with awareness is that people assume it's from the mind, my insight, my awareness, the local awareness they Mm -hmm. take to be what you are all talking about. So they're so confused. I mean, it might be a small section of society, but I see them, they find me. And Mm -hmm. so, uh, and I I probably was there too, because I learned about non-duality in 1995 with Ramesh Balsakar in India. And I probably, I mean, I loved it, because it helped the hurt a little bit. But I I couldn't really use it because of the dual world and the Course in Miracles saying, choose again. And it's just my mind was scrambled between paths. So that's kind of a long answer, but it's a heartfelt one. Yeah. I'm glad you said all that because, you know, when you... Brian and I are kind of gone down the rabbit hole and and a lot of our listeners too. And we forget that we are using jargon that isn't necessarily meaningful to part to a large section of, of humanity. And we thought of calling this inner explorers, but you know, we obviously talk a lot about awareness. And everybody needs different terms to touch them that feel real to them. You know, I, I often use the term more tapping into more peace, love, and joy, mm-hmm. you know, because everybody can kind of relate to at least what that is referring to. Whereas mm-hmm. with awareness, you know, that means something to a few people, but not, not the average person walking down the street. So I congratulate you for doing that. And I'll, well, I'll go out on a limb and say that recently I am really searching for new words that don't bring up a polarity because you're right, people are attracted to peace, love, and joy. And so that's a great motivator, but it also brings up the opposites for them and then they're back in it. And that's that's one of the things I love about your podcast is that it's also deeply psychological, smartly psychological, I think. But yet, so words I'm liking right now are words like isness. It doesn't attract anyone. Nobody wants to know about the isness. Oh, but- baby, I just love your isness. Yeah, you don't get that. <laughs> 
<laughs> right. It, 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 but yet it has the neutrality of no opposite. And aren't we all tired of going between the polarities? We find the peace, love, and joy, and then we're back in it, in the suffering or the whatever the opposite of those words are for each of us. So I'm looking for those words because I found something in the death of my daughter when I had a kind of awakening experience when I was shaken and I had been suffering but I found I was okay. And I now see that that okay word is used by other people. Mm-hmm. And it, some people don't even like it because it's not a positive word. But at the time, it was the most neutral word I could find for the absence of suffering. Where did it go? And why am I okay And is it all right to be okay when my daughter just died? Mm -hmm. And so that's why I keep on trying to find similar words to okay. I, I know they don't motivate people, but in the end of the day, that's where the greater peace is for me, to finding the place that's between abstinence and indulgence off the question not even the not even the middle road but getting off the question is such a relief when i find myself should i cut back or no it's really better when i just give myself all the whatever and then when i get off the question that then I can re-enter the isness or the okayness. So I don't know if that makes any sense to you too, but that's where I am now. It makes perfect sense to me uh, because uh, the the true I, which is one of your one of my favorite expressions in your book, is actually beyond the polarities. It's not either this or that. It's 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 both and. It it, it, yes. it includes everything including peace love and joy but including yes. also your your so-called negative emotions your yes. your your anger your fear it, it includes it all and and i like the word okay because there's a there's a certain okayness with whatever emotion arises yes my my friend who's deeply into non-duality for as long as i have had been using the word flow And yesterday I said to her, well, what if the flow is the chaos and the disruption and the upset feelings? Is that also the flow or is the flow only when it goes your way? And she said, oh, I I don't know about that word anymore. Um, (laughs) It it used to mean when everything goes my way, oh, I'm in the flow of God's grace or whatever it is. Yeah. The word flow also has all those other connotations, like with sports, when you're like in the zone and things like yeah. that. You know, uh, I'm part of a group called Perfectly Okay. And mm-hmm. those combinations of mm-hmm. that can be good. And also mm-hmm. in uh, what's called the Finders course uh, that Jeffrey, uh, that Brian and I took, they use the word fundamental well being. Mm-hmm. I love that. Love yeah. that. Yes. And, and, you know, it's really important to get the right term because you want to not trigger people into some kind of, of alternate thing. Um, 
In fact, the Buddha was asked, you know, what happens after enlightenment? You know, will will it be blissful? Will it be, you know, fantastic? And uh, uh, according to the story, the Buddha said, all I'm going to say about it is that you won't be suffering anymore. And, And that was a good answer, because if we look for bliss, we'll miss the underlying reality, which is just, as you call it, isness. And sometimes we get lost in trying to get to this place that is different than what reality is. Yeah. And, you know, it does have the inspirational effect, those words. And if you're on a progressive path, you need those things. Would I have joined anything that was about the isness when I was suffering years ago? I don't think so. So, you know, everything has its place, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I also loved the fact that um, when you talked about the word flow, that we often think of it in terms of being in the zone and everything goes well with us. But if we alternatively thought of flow as in a river flows, sometimes Mm -hmm. the river is calm, sometimes the river is turbulent, but it's all flow. Absolutely. That's brilliant. And also, when you think of the I'm not an athlete, but when I have understood how athletes really do their genius, they're not in anything. They're outside of it. They're not in how am I doing? They're not in what do they think? How do I look? How am I doing? None of the the, the questions. The, the zone is actually the nothingness, the expansiveness of nothingness, the fullness of nothingness. And of course, that wouldn't attract anybody either. Um, Come to the nothingness. No, you'll have freedom. Um, We're going to come up with many terms that will attract no one to our cause and see how (laughs) successful we are. They all seem attractive to me. I love that. Yeah. And at a certain point, we actually need words like that. They fill us, the emptiness, because we know that that's, that's a new place, if you will, a place that's always been there but been unrecognized. And so it's new to us, new to the separate self. Mm-hmm. Speaking of, of different terms, uh, once again, the uh, leader of the Finders Course, Jeffrey Martin, want to interview a lot of teachers without getting too lost in jargon. So he had to create a term for what he was interested in, which you know could be called enlightenment, but enlightenment means so many different things. So he came up with the term persistent non-symbolic experience. Whoa. And uh, that everybody said, oh, yeah, okay, that fits, you know, and it has no baggage with it. Nobody's heard it before. And it doesn't mean that you're a wonderful person or you're a terrible person or anything. It just means you're having experience as not based through the mediation of language and and thought. Mm -hmm. And it's especially attractive to thinkers. You have to be a thinker to even understand that term. You have to like, it's not a feeling kind of uh, kinesthetic. It's cerebral. It is neutral. You know, yeah. he, he achieved what he wanted, but it's very um, thinker type person on the Enneagram. It's a, it's a 
a mental type, uh, cerebral. Yes. And I found the thorniest people or the people that I've spoken to about it who have the hardest time grasping all of this are the people who want to analyze everything like I used to be, who really are smart and intelligent and have used their brains successfully. But that's not where the answer lies, because this emptiness, this isness doesn't talk in that language, because language is the way of separating things. It's yeah. making distinctions between things. Absolutely. So yeah. how do you how do you get through to the the thinking type person? Well, I love to say that this the beingness, enlightenment, whatever okayness can be known but not understood. Yes. Yes. It just needs to be quieted that it's not about they're not having the answer yet, the puzzle piece yet, the something yet. They, it, The mind just has to be told, you have your job, you can be an assistant, you can work in the world, and now there's something else for you that it's not possible to do just so that they stop trying. Mm-hmm. And then offer something very, very basic, emotional that they can do. Because remember, most of us are distorted. And if we're thinker types, we're overly developed there. So we're probably in kindergarten in the emotional arena. If you want a a thinking type to answer about their feeling, you would say best could you think about this feeling and get back to me about how you feel? Because mm-hmm. there's anxiety about feelings. They know they're not good at it. It's trouble that they're they're resourced in their thinking, but it's so overdeveloped. And in this world, there's just not enough mind to get there. It's not possible. So I have found it helpful for a short period, just to get in there with a, a meditation or a story or to speak to the person from my beingness to their beingness and bypass the mind. It only works a short time to say something like that because the mind will come back. But in the meantime, they've had an experience. And then I remind them of the experience and make, because there's a tendency of the mind to then minimize, oh, well, that was a nice experience or that was a nice meditation and not make it real or as important as the mind. And so to see that that's the strategy, that that's actually a part, uh, keeping it away from beingness, using your IFS language. Yeah. Well, you bring up the point, Rosalind, that there's different types of people, and and you're a teacher of the Enneagram, and I'm wondering how that has impacted your teaching. Do you try to find out what of the nine types a person is before you talk to them about any of this stuff? Well, I do give them a test. There's a test that I like that has been validated 
it's better than others. It's not perfect. Um, so then the first thing I do is try to see if they actually have the right Enneagram. For example, just in Enneagram language, many uh, eights think they're twos because they the two is the helper, the eight is the leader. Eight is a bigger energy, like someone like Elvis Presley, Donald Trump, or uh, Mother Teresa actually is an eight. She's often mistyped as a two. And a lot of eights like to see themselves as twos, helpers. And so they answer the test, ignoring their anger and speaking of the big way that eights do go to twos, but they're not twos. So anyway, getting back to the spiritual, I use the Enneagram ultimately as a neti neti. Neti neti is not this. Neti neti is a Sanskrit word that refer, I'm sure you know it, but maybe the listeners don't. Um, there's a line in the Course in Miracles, I'm not my body, I'm free. Well, I'm not this, I'm not the personality. Just going, starting from where they are, believing that there's a solid personality that's a separate self, and knowing that that's, that there's suffering there, mm -hmm. and then tapping into the suffering and giving them frequently the nod that that's not them. So then there's the courage to speak of the suffering, the courage to speak of the imagined shame, the imagined unworthiness. If it's not you, you confess up so much easier. It's just a belief system. Going back to your wonderful podcast on beliefs, personalities, separate bodies are belief systems. Are they not? It's a hypnotic belief system because we share it. So it's, I mean, it's probably the most powerful belief system we have because we start everything from that. I mean, so, what do you think? Well, it sounds like you use the Enneagram to help people learn about their personality structure so that they can more easily disidentify from it. Is that exactly. correct? Exactly. Yeah. And I'm starting where they are. These are people who are not ready to do anything more, but they sense it in me. Actually, the drawing card for people to, I think, I don't know, it seems, is like, how can this person be filled with exuberance and love of life and not be having her life over when her daughter that she loved died? Mm. And they, they're they really there for the curiosity of what what is it that I know? What is it that I am? And they want that. So they'll do the Enneagram. They'll do it, whatever else I say to do. <laughs> but I really think that that's because when you look around the room, if I talk about Melissa or what is it that I know that I never forget? And I have to say, just fessing up to you, I know something about death that I actually don't know permanently about the separate person. I forget about the separate person and have to bring myself back to truth on a regular basis. With death, I absolutely know that it's continuous. 
that yes, the body's gone. Yes, the personality's gone. And I know it's not a visualization. It's not uh, from something I've seen. It's just a knowing that I don't forget that ancestors, it, it's energy just changes. It's not an idea. It's a felt sense. And I'm grateful for that. And I would like the rest to come along because that's my kinesthetic teacher. It's like, I know the rest I can know as well as I know that, where I rest in it. It's like Santa Claus. If you believed in Santa Claus and then you were saw that there was no Santa Claus, you would never have to remind yourself, right? There's, mm-hmm. You wouldn't have to go, oh, there's a Santa Claus. There's no Santa Claus. There's no, you know. It's that. It's like knowing life is continuous. And that's very reassuring to a separate self. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in other words, the the analogy of of seeing through the the myth of Santa Claus would be seeing through the identification with the temporary parts of our being, our our bodies, our personalities. Is Is that it? That's it. And then that's what brings up the isness, because the isness is an invitation to life, however extends. It, it brings up that word. Life is another good word. People don't fight with the word life. Maybe I'll bring that up in the meditation. Mm-hmm. You know, people fight with God, people fight with beingness, awareness, you know, you name it, absolute. But life, our connection to life, we know that. We just know that. We know we're alive. We don't have to check with our brains. We don't have to check our pulse, our heartbeat. We know we're alive. We just don't know what it means or its impact. But I find that another solid word that people don't fight with and they understand. Mm -hmm. I would imagine that you sometimes get asked about practices to help people know the isness. And I'm wondering if you do recommend practices, and if so, are they different for different people on the Enneagram, different you know personality types? So I love that question. Thank you for that question. I'm a great proponent of giving up practices unless you love them. If you're if you do the practice to get somewhere, I I ask you to qu- look at where you go where you're wanting to go, look at that longing, look at what you're how you're trying to be to better yourself. The offering that goes with isness, which I'll bring up in the meditation, is a, a little image that I share with the people I work with. It's actually, I think it might be on page 33 of the book, somewhere close to that. It's a calling card uh, that the wisdom character holds, and it's a picture of a tug-of-war. So imagine a scrunched-up face with someone who's holding a tug-of-war. And part of the story is if you give up your side of whatever the fight is, whatever the struggle is. And so I, I would, would like to bring that up in the meditation, everybody to find what it is 
that they struggle with because it's usually one or two topics. Uh, if the topic is unworthiness, then you might go over your partner and your child uh, and your work and your money, but it's really about the unworthiness. But many people actually just loop over the same subject, their bodies, uh, what they did wrong, recriminations from the past, you name it, but it's usually looping the same topics. Mm -hmm. or the same themes. So the other thing, so these are like tools in their pocketbook that I have found to be enormously helpful. And another one, this came, originated from Pia Malady. She's a little bit older, I think, than you two guys. I'm not, I'm not quite sure of your ages, uh, but she was around in the late 70s in the codependent movement. And uh, she came up with the seven feelings and I have tweaked them. But what I love about them is I ask people to interview yourself and say, is there any joy? Is there any pain? If there's any, you get to have the bigger word because we can work with bigger words. We can't work with, I have a little frustration. I'm a little bit anxious. I'm a little bit out of sorts. I mean, what can you do with those kinds of words that we use with ourselves? But if someone says, I'm frustrated, okay, you're frustrated. Is there any anger in frustration? Yeah. And I find that in interviewing yourself, especially with the intent of using a calmer voice, and I'll go through all the feelings in a minute, but with a calmer voice, you're giving yourself a pause that you would not be taking when you're upset. I, 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 I've never been able to use it when people say, take a pause. No, that's like telling me to relax when I'm upset. That's another judgment I don't need anymore, right? So the seven feelings that she came up with that are bigger than most of us like to admit are joy, pain, and they go in pairs very brilliantly. Joy, pain, anger, fear. She called it guilt, shame. I call it perceived mistakes and imagined unworthiness. And then she put in there lust, and I put lust for life, and I added an eighth, which is presence. Because the people that I see can agree that they would like to be presence. You know, there's big news these days on loneliness. That's the new catchword. You, you both have words in your titles. You used to be depressed. I think loneliness is, is the new word for depression, but it, it's a great word because people are able to admit they have it more easily than we were able to admit depression. And I think from studying in an unscientific way, the people who are online saying that they're lonely have not looked at what they're bringing to the table first, their feelings, because 
connectedness is an inner experience. You you can feel lonely in a group of people if you're shaming yourself, if you're hating this person, judging. Right? You can be. You'll be. You will. I I guarantee you, you won't feel good if you're doing that. And so the outward steps of connection that the Surgeon General is promoting, and it's on TV shows about what you can do if you move to a community and you're feeling lonely. And interestingly, it's the the, the college graduates, it's the young people that are the most lonely, apparently. Mm-hmm. But it's this inner work. So seeing what you're dealing with then you have the pause and dropping your side of the rope. It's, it, it, it's a direct experience of right now because it brings you into the now. We can do it in the, in the meditation. But the, as far as practices, I don't call the practices. They are essential in a toolbox, but you could call them practices, checking in with your feeling. And that kind of covers the parts thing without the detail. I find that the mental types on the Enneagram love IFS. They can get going on the parts and elaborate on those details and just get lost. You're smiling, Brian. Are you are you picking up some of that? Yeah, absolutely. I've experienced it. I've seen it in others and in myself. Yeah. But, you know, admitting to a feeling brings you into the now. And then surprisingly, we'll see if it works for, for you all and for your audience. But I like to use that method that we use in eye movement, which is to, and we do it in other trauma work, rating the feeling. So rating your situation, one to 10, how upset are you? And then we'll do the meditation and come back to it and see, is it any different? Are you having a direct experience without using your brain and without doing anything? And that's what I try to build on. Wow, that's wonderful. A lot of wisdom there. And 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 that brings me to a question also Jonathan asked about techniques. So I wanted to circle back a little bit to your book, When Wisdom Arrives, which starts with a fable about a, a young woman named Jem who has a, a conversation with someone whom you call wisdom. And she learns to connect to her true eye, that that you call it the deeper, gentler part of all of us. But in it, you also talk about what you call the protocol, which is, if it's hurtful, don't touch it. And I, I found that to be such a wonderful crystallization. I was wondering if you might expand on that a little. Yeah, because that's it. Uh, the The rope is in there. When we drop the rope, and we see what the subject is that we loop about, then the next step is don't touch it. Don't touch it. It sounds so simple, 
but it stops the looping. It's it's neurologically exactly what they what they tell us we need a pattern interrupt in NLP language, right? That we need to stop. We long to stop. And I don't explain to the little girl, but we all know in this room and you're with your listeners, everything is available when we stop the looping, when we get out of the brain and just be in what's already there. It's almost unexplainable. But the little girl finds it when I play games with her. I take her out of her experience. She thinks she worries all day long, thinks all day long about how fat she is. And purposely, I didn't make her that fat. So it's more body dysmorphia, like most of us making a big deal out of our pimple or my face isn't symmetrical because I once had brain surgery. So I could think about that if I wanted to be upset. You know, you could take any part and do what she was doing, but just by playing games and look at what you, you, you guys are masters at finding games that take us out of our usual thinking mind, thinking, feeling syndrome, if you will, if we want to pathologize it and give us the freedom of another lens. That's what you all offer. She had a new experience when when wisdom says, well, what was different when you agreed to play in your imagination? She just played it in her imagination. She signed on to play on the internet with people who she wasn't willing to say yes to. And she had so much fun in her imagination. And then when she actually played well, where did the misery go? And what is she? Not who is she, but what is she? Is she those thoughts and feelings? Or is she this free, happy experience that really wasn't embodied? We talk about usually embodied as a good feeling, but it just... It was embodied because she felt it, but she didn't identify with it as a something that she has to be. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a, a long history of dealing with shame and unworthiness. And in a very practical way, I'm wondering for people who are struggling with that, what do you say to them that might help them to? handle that those thought loops and that way of of relating to their selves well the first thing i do is remember how painful that is just you know before i do anything or say anything just to know that that is one of the private because shame Shame tells you don't tell anyone. It's bad enough that it's true. Now hide it. That is the illness, the poison of a belief in unworthiness. And I I did spend two years while I was writing the book trying to talk people 
in in a cerebral way, like prove logically if a baby is born, like <laughs> is the baby unworthy? At what point did you become unworthy? Like trying to get there logically. Mm-hmm. And now I've decided that for me and for others, getting off the question is the best gift I can give anyone. The opposite of unworthiness is not worthiness. It's getting off the question. So what you all do to bring people to the light, bring people to freedom in your games, that's the gift of the opposite of unworthiness. And I'll tell you practically for myself, I ask people to do what I do, which is figure out what my subjects are. What are the oops oops subjects that would bring me back into shame? So I was an obese child. I can look in a mirror. Now I've gotten rid of the scale. I've gotten rid of food plans. I've gotten rid of all the external things that would indicate control. But I can look in the mirror and decide if my skirt is getting tight. And that's an oops subject. Mm -hmm. I I need to notice I'm stepping back into unworthiness. So what I've noticed, everybody's going to be different on the Enneagram. For me as a four, being on my edge, being uh, doing things that are scary like your podcast, because I think so much of the two of you, of course, I want to do well. I want the book to be represented, my daughter to be represented. That actually takes me out of unworthiness. Unworthiness is a small, separate self-feeling. Mm-hmm. And there isn't any amount of worthiness, like whatever whatever I could have said to someone that's going to talk me out of it. But getting off the subject where like even that, even seeing that's my oops subject, somebody else could have money, somebody else could have relationships, somebody else could have time. Do you see what I mean? That's what I think is the most helpful is to see the nature of shame and that when you go into hiding, it gets worse. So tell somebody I'm having a not very good enough day. Whatever you can do to expose it, can stop it. And when it gets going, which we used to call shame spirals, oh, I'm terrible at this. And you know, when I did that and continuing to add on. So that's in the story. Don't add on, don't touch it. And what that means is don't add on. Notice you're adding on and that's enough to stop. When you realize how much it hurts. We're all wired to want to stop hurting. Yes, there are those dynamics that make you believe that if you hurt enough, we've been taught this, if you've been punished enough, then you'll be better. We have that idea in us somewhere. I've seen that actually a fair amount. You know, I'm a psychotherapist and I work with people and they often have that idea like if I just you know, root out every single hurt and trauma of my life, then I will feel great. And 
And what I find is that, no, you can feel great just by being with the isness, by being fully present. You don't need to spend 25 years doing that. Right. But we are, yes. And, and we're, we're taught that that's has merit and, and also that hurting shows that you're good enough. Like you, you see what you did wrong. So now you're worthy. Mm. It, it's a, it's a crazy kind of thinking. It's similar to mothers should suffer because they love their daughters. Like that makes no sense, but it's in most cultures, not, not all, but most that people will say to you, oh, I know what you're going through. Pretty much they'll say, you're, I, we understand your life is over. Yeah, your daughter died. You loved her. Just knowing that it's, in, it, it's one of those illogical feelings in the sense that unworthiness really, or shame, feels like your being is unworthy your spirit it's it's more than it feels like more than what you did because when you're when you did something wrong you can correct it you can say i'm sorry you can make it up to the person it feels like a soul wound mm. and is that even true or is that something that as beings we have passed on to each other as cultures. I shouldn't use the word being because we're using that for something else. But as people and communities, we teach each other. Children are born loving their feet. Later on, you say, oh, my feet are dirty. You know, you're taught all these things. But children, unless they've had some kind of disruption in utero or some dysfunction in the mechanisms in their birth, they love every part of themselves. And that's natural. But then we teach them, that's not good. This is good. And we teach children ways often that they can't feel good enough. We, we we say this is wrong, but you could be right if you do it this way. Even that wouldn't help. You know, I think we'd still have maybe less. But we, as parents, we've been shamed and we shame. But that doesn't mean that we have to believe it. Your your episode, if anybody hasn't listened to it on beliefs, is so brilliant. And it's a great starting point because shame is a belief. It's a feeling that's based on a belief that's in a belief system. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And the acronym for belief system is BS. <laughs> Perfect. Yes. Yes. So knowing that you're having an illogical, untrue feeling is a great motivator for some people. The minute I woke up to that I was okay and Melissa had still died, the next thought went was, do I dare tell anyone that I'm okay? Really? I mean, I mean, could you believe that I'm thinking at that moment? Like, and then I realized, well, it's not true. And so much of my Enneagram and who I've been in life 
is about truth and authenticity. I can't pretend I'm suffering if I'm okay. I can't. And I shouldn't then. I need to be, even if people shun me, and I actually expected it could happen, even if people shun me, I still have to say it because it's not true. And for all the people who are thinking they have to suffer, and I know this isn't our topic, but in grief groups and these stages of grief, they're keeping each other in misery. It doesn't yeah. lead to acceptance. I've seen that, that there's a, like, you're only doing it right if you're staying in grief and suffering. Yes. And something I've seen with grief is that it comes and goes very quickly. You know, it you can be crying deeply and then five minutes later feeling really good. Uh, but we want to be consistent. You know, somebody asks you, how are you doing? Well, you know, when my last dog died, you know, in some moments when they asked me that, I felt like I should say I'm feeling terrible. But in that moment, I was great. You yes, know? exactly. So, and then other moments you're not. And, exactly. and we almost have a language for that or it's yes. not. Yes. Yeah. And the language is a trap because then in many grief groups, people it's it's transaction. How are you? I'm in depression. How are you? I'm back in bargaining. And so they've labeled the stages. Um, everybody's different, and I don't want to make anybody sound wrong, but there is another way. And acceptance can happen right now. You don't have to be in stages. You can have a feeling. It's almost Melissa's anniversary there are feelings, but I don't need to label them as a stage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is my daughter's God. That can get you stuck. Yeah. Yeah. And it's again that identification. Mm -hmm. The isness and the isness doesn't care. The isness doesn't have judgments. You can just have a feeling. The isness doesn't care. Mm -hmm. Such a relief. At first, not being a separate self, especially if you've had a lot of shame like me, it feels like a loss because you are looking to be good enough. So you're not anyone separate. Oh, it doesn't feel good. But after a while, oh, that's just a relief not to be that person. Yeah. Yes, relief. That's actually one of my my favorite words um, because it's true. It's it, it it's actually effortful to keep the illusion of separateness. Yes. We don't realize that, but it's yes. a relief when it's ah yes mm -hmm. yes. And whatever is happening is the part of the isness. So that doesn't need to be judged either. And you're not the arbiter. You're just one of the alive things right now. You're going along for the ride. Yeah. Is there anything that we miss asking you that you would like to attend to or, or say? I don't know. Brian, did we miss anything from the book? Uh, yeah, actually, there's one one thing that, that really... Uh, that I loved um, in When Wisdom Arrives, you wrote, the true I has no agenda except to be 
and fulfill our unique expression of life. And this is such an elegant way of framing the paradox of the the universal self of non-duality and the individual with its unique gifts. Because many people think that to be oneness or to to embody non-duality, they deny the the human and and its own uniqueness. Yeah. I I love that. I'm surprised I wrote that. It sounds so good. <laughs> I forget my own words, but yeah, the uniqueness is so important and people have still these legacies of the word enlightenment where they think it's a kumbaya and that means you're never angry or you're never reject and there was a person who wanted to work with me and everything in my body i've never had this feeling like no no i'm not the person for you it wasn't rational it was just no and so i went with it and the feedback i got later just hearing what she went through i was not the person for her what she was expressing she needed was not me and she gets to be her in this world i get to be me and maybe we're not a match and and that was the most enlightened thing i could do was to say no and yet that doesn't look loving it doesn't look and i told her what i thought she needed and it turns i don't know if she found it i think she did but i've continued to know what i would say is she clearly does not want to hear and there's just one thing left on the book that you made me think of. I'm not sure why. At the end of the book, and the girl is saying goodbye to the wisdom character, and she says, I can remember what hurt, but that's what you t came here for. I'm not going to bring that all up again. I know I could. And that's all of us. How often do we ask ourselves, do I need to be going over this? Where did it land the last time? Is this really a new version? We tell ourselves we're going to figure it out this time, but it's really the same old version. And the don't touch it and don't add to it gives us that space that we wouldn't be willing to take from our looping thoughts into that isness, into our beingness, into what exists that's not separate. Mm, that's well said. I, when I find myself looping, I have a very simple way of, of getting out of it. And that is I say to myself, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> that's wonderful. I love that. That's just as good. Anyway. Maybe I'll write a new book called Blah, Blah. I'll give you the <laughs> <laughs> That's um, you have a, a meditation for us that uh, we'd love to experience and i uh, look forward to hearing your approach to helping guiding people in this way all right so let's all start if you would by thinking of a recent time could be this morning could be whenever you're listening to a recent time of upset and 
go over what your subject was. Was it money? Was it your body? Was it a partner? Was it yourself? Just you'll remember. And then just take one minute, if you will. I'm going to interview you about eight different feelings. And maybe you could say just to yourself whether you have any of this feeling, even though it might be bigger than what you are accounting for. So you have your situation. Before I ask you the feeling, I should have asked you to rate it. Can you rate it now? How upsetting is it? from one, just a little annoying, just a little upsetting, to 10, if I don't stop thinking about this or feeling about this, I'm going to go crazy. Somewhere in there, just give it a number. Whatever first number comes is good enough. Now I'm going to ask you just quickly if you have any of this feeling in that situation. Keep thinking of the situation. Let it be as upsetting as it is. Is there any anger in this situation in you, in the person? If there's anger, you can write it down or just make a note of it. Is there any joy? Joy in this situation? Is there any pain in this situation? Is there any fear in this situation? Are there any perceived mistakes, often called guilt? Is there any imagined unworthiness, often called shame? Is there any lust or longing? Could be sexual, but it could be just wanting, like longing. And now see how present you are. Is there a lack of presence? Are you at least present to your feelings? If you're present to your feelings, now you're in the now. Just for this moment, you're in the now. That's great. Whatever you're feeling is great because you're in contact with your mind-body. And using this in my life, even out of context to a meditation, I would reflect back to myself. Pain is happening. Anger is happening. Fear is happening. Whatever it is, imagined unworthiness. And notice I didn't say I am having or I said, it's happening, because feelings come and go. So now, just for the sake of this beautiful chance we have together to be in meditation and have some extra minutes, 
take these feelings and put them in some kind of box. Just for a few minutes, you're going to come back to it. We're not getting rid of anything. We're just allowing whatever has happened in the last moment. Going to put them in a box near your heart. Could be anywhere, but for today, I'm saying near your heart. And now, before we do anything else, notice your posture and notice your breathing. We've just been in an upsetting situation in your mind and in your feelings. Are you contracted? Is your body upright or bent over? Where are your arms and where is where are your shoulders? Are they raised or lowered? Where are they? And now take your arms and put them out in front of you, all the way out in front of you, and feel your fingers wiggling around so you know the energy has gone out through your fingers. And now just imagine from your fingers they're bouncing into the wall. And the wall is like your body. It's like your temporary room. And now with your energy, and you can put your arms down if they're getting tired, imagine the energy of life pushing through the walls. The walls of your room and your house are artificial. Life contains air that's inside and outside, and we might think it's different, but on the outside, it's the same air as the inside, the air of life, unless you have a purifier, and so on. Now just breathe. Now you're outside. Take in whatever weather is outside. If it's sunny, take in the rays. If it's raining, take in the rain. If it's in between and cloudy. And notice when you're outside of your body and you're in the isness of imagination and outside of the room, Whatever weather it is, is okay. You don't have to have any opinion on the weather. It just is. And for the sake of time, we'll come inside, but you could spend as much time as you like outside of your body in the isness of the weather. And most of the time, you don't fight the weather. And if you do fight the weather, you're going to lose because the weather always wins. And that's just like life, where the isness of the weather and this experience of being okay with whatever is 
is your nature. You've developed a personality, but underneath the personality is this isness that you were born with. You learn to like and certain things and have preferences, and that's all fine. It brings your uniqueness. But this isness that allows, that doesn't react, is always there. So we're going to come back into the room and you're going to find your box near your heart and you're going to open up your box and see what the level of upset is. Brian, I'll ask you, did your level of upset go down at all, or is it the same, or did it go up? Oh, it went way down. Went way down. And did you do anything to make it happen? Did you change it? Did you change no, it? I didn't make any attempt to change anything. You just looked. I just looked. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just and that, does it feel as though that it has the same power over you that it did. It doesn't feel the same power. It also feels smaller and just like another element in the weather that includes all of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say of the hundreds of times I've done this with people, Maybe there has been one or two percent of people who said the number didn't go down, and that's because they couldn't do the exercise. They said, I couldn't do it, I was too distracted, whatever. So what does that tell us? It tells us we don't need to do anything. We might not even need to touch it, but we do have to stop adding more which is kind of what I said in the book. And when you were going over your upset, were you struggling with it like the tug of war, you want this, but the situation was not going that way? Was there any way you needed to let go of the rope? Well, just by looking at it and feeling, in a sense, outside of it, the letting go seemed to happen naturally. Yes. Yes. That's an important lesson. Yes. 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 I, I watched you, Jonathan, and I wasn't sure you were actually doing the exercise. Were you doing it? I was. I sometimes do these exercises with eyes open. That's good. Because I want to bring these abilities into more of a waking, open yes. I love that. I love that. And so what was your experience of it? Well, it's very similar to Brian's. And um, the cutting edge for me is trying to do this while eyes open and even while engaged in activity. Yes. I see that, you know, first you have to, know that experience, and then you have to bring it into daily life. Absolutely. That's kind of where I'm yes. 
practicing at this point. I love that. And and uh, when I do it with my eyes open, I play with expanding my vision. Do you do that too? I do, yeah. 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 Uh-huh. And also, I, now I've forgotten because I've read both of your books at the same time. One of you suggests seeing out the way you do as a separate self and then seeing from the eyes of the absolute. I think that's Brian's. Is that Brian's? Is, yeah. It rings a bell. Yeah. And I love that too. So these are, th- those are really quick too. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you can do those without a lot of time. And you can do what I have found is even doing this one minute and even interviewing yourself, what the feelings are, what's underneath that, if you just did that part, you're not fighting with it. You're just saying what it is. You're not minimizing. Minimizing keeps things going. I'm just a little frustrated. I'm not angry. Just a little frustrated. You will be more angry and stay angry than by saying, ouch, I'm actually angry. (laughs) That's enough to take care of it. So Thank you for having me on. There's just been so much gratitude that I have felt toward both of you for just doing this and then including me. It's been wonderful. Well, we are very grateful too, because uh, this this has been really lovely. And I think that that our listeners will will benefit. And speaking of our listeners and your book, I just want to mention one thing. Your book has three wonderful parts. There's a fable, and then there's a memoir about your story, and then there's a question and answer section. And I recommend that you listeners, if you read Rosalind's book, make sure to read all three, because they might land differently for different people. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you. That is so true. I did have one person, one out of all the people who've read it, who said the Q&A changed her life. And it's somebody I know and wouldn't have expected that she would even read it. So I, I love the mystery of all of this. Thank you. How can people find out about your work, Rosalind? They can write to me at Rosalind at RosalindRourke.com. There's a website with lots of free stuff there. And there's a free group if you like this exercise and like talking about these subjects and reading the book. We're right now reading the book. You can join us for free right on the the website. Sign up for glimpses and that'll get you straight there. Mm. It's free. And it meets twice a month, first and third Mondays. So Lovely. And a thank you to our Patreon supporters for supporting the podcast. If you want to be a member or support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com forward slash awareness explorers. Wonderful conversation and meditation. Thank you so much, Rosalind. And of course, Brian, always great seeing you. And to our listeners, keep exploring. Keep exploring. Thank you for listening to Awareness Explorers. To learn more, you can check out our website at awarenessexplorers.com. Please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app, We'd love it if you would post a review. And please share our link on Facebook and with family and friends. 
because knowing yourself as awareness is the greatest gift you can give yourself or someone you love.